Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 44. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Set Fair for Roanoke, part four. I'm recording this on October 22nd, 2021 in Austin, Texas. But I wrote the first part of the script earlier this week in Princeton, New Jersey, which will figure prominently in the history of the Americans, starting roughly 190 years down the timeline. Not once, but many times. Not only did George Washington win an important battle a short walk from here in early 1777, but the Continental Congress sat in session in Princeton University's Nassau Hall, then the largest stone building in the United States, for a good part of 1783. It was in Nassau Hall that the Continental Congress received the news that Great Britain and the United States had agreed to end the war. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, though, we are here to have some fun. We hope you enjoy listening to the history of the Americans as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple or wherever you like to write reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. I do have one exciting announcement. One of my daughters is a budding graphic design professional, and I commissioned her to design the first History of the Americans podcast merch, which is available through a little online store you can get to through the website. Right now, there is one design, and it goes on t-shirts and sweatshirts and such, and you will instantly get the joke. The website is thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and once there, if you click on the About tab at the top, you will see an option to get merch through a Shop button. It will take you to a virtual store on teespring.com. What could be easier? You've been shopping online and navigating these things for almost two years now. More designs and products are coming, including, soon enough, that Cabeza de Vaca pint glass that I teased a few months back. Assuming my daughter can draw a presentable Cabeza de Vaca, I am quite sure that I cannot. To be clear, this is all for fun and to spread the word. I'm going to give a chunk of the notional profits to the aforementioned daughter, and the rest I'll give to some nonpartisan charity that will not offend anyone. This episode is set fair for Roanoke Part 4, and it pairs well with the other Roanoke episodes, if you have not already listened to them. In this episode, we follow the 1587 expedition that will eventually become the Lost Colony. It is the fall of 1586. Sir Francis Drake has returned to England from his expedition to the West Indies and brought with him Ralph Lane, Thomas Harriet, John White, and all but three of the remaining settlers in the first colony. 
Three of Lane's men were afield for some reason and could not be reached by the time the wind turned and Drake's fleet departed. On the day after Christmas, Sir Richard Grenville would also return to England, having arrived at Roanoke Island within days of Drake and Lane and the others abandoning it. Grenville, at Sir Walter Raleigh's behest, was to have left a bunch of new colonists at the site, perhaps more than 200. But in the befuddling absence of Lane's group, Grenville instead made the strange choice to leave only 15 men and some supplies. We know very little about this group, why Grenville left them, and whether they had any choice in the matter. David Beers Quinn speculated they were volunteers, tired of life at sea while Grenville chased Spanish ships around the North Atlantic. Regardless, such a small contingent in a potentially hostile country was in all likelihood doomed, even if one did not know that the Secatan Indians had gone to war and that the Spanish were hunting for the colony. We know a little bit about their fate because John White and Manteo got back to Roanoke in 1587 with Raleigh's expedition that year. And they asked around, and John White then wrote it down. Here's what seems to have happened. The Secatans teamed up with another local tribe and planned to eliminate the tiny English settlement. They picked 30 men and delivered them to the island, where they hid in the woods near the small town. Eleven of the fifteen English were at home, as it were. So two seemingly unarmed Indians approached two of the settlers they believed to be leaders, making friendly gestures. One of the Indians embraced one of the Englishmen, and the other whacked him in the head with a concealed wooden sword, killing him. The second Englishman ran to the cluster of buildings, raising the alarm. The remaining ten English made it to their sturdiest structure with their weapons, and the Indians besieged them. The English had food and water in the building and might have held the Indians off, but the roof was thatch, and the Indians fired it in short order, driving the English into the open. They retreated through the woods toward their boat and mostly managed to hold off the much larger group of Indians. One of their number took an arrow in the mouth, killing him. Then there were nine, and they made it into their boat and headed for the nearest opening in the barrier islands to the ocean, a place that no longer exists. If you have Google Maps available to you, find the Port Fernando historical marker, and there it was. That was actually a gap in the barrier islands back then, so all during these expeditions to Roanoke Island, the ships were entering the inland waterway at that spot. A quarter mile out, they picked up the other four, trudging back from having gathered oysters. It was almost certainly an R month, so they would have been especially tasty. Now they were 14 people. The Indians saw them land on a small island near the gap in the barrier islands. That island probably does not exist anymore either, and they disappear from history. They might have sailed along the coast, perhaps up to the Chesapeake, and either integrated with or been killed by another tribe. Add these 14 to the three left behind by Lane, and there were then as many as 17 Englishmen stranded in North Carolina in 1586. How they lived and how long they lived is the subject of rumor, speculation, and absolutely no actual knowledge. 
Back in England, still the fall of 1586, Sir Walter Raleigh, owner of the patent to settle the vast territory he named Virginia after Elizabeth, and sponsor of all the expeditions to today's North Carolina, was both very busy and intensely irritated. Raleigh was busy because England and Spain were getting closer to war, and as one of Elizabeth's key players, Raleigh figured prominently in organizing the defense of the realm against Spanish invasion and subversion. Raleigh was irritated because Lane had abandoned Roanoke Island after sending home glowing reports about its opportunity and fertility a year earlier. Lane's response was not unreasonable. Dude, we're in tarnation where the supply ships and the new colonists you were supposed to send. Raleigh would have known that his first supply ship sailed later than promised, with Grenville's reinforcing fleet a few weeks behind. He would not know that the supply ship would have a long crossing, and that Grenville would take his jolly sweet time getting to the Outer Banks, having gone on various piratical frolics along the way. Regardless, Lane pressed three points. First, that based on his exploration of the area, the right place for a colony was somewhere near the mouth of the Chesapeake, rather than at Roanoke Island or anywhere on the Outer Banks. Unlike the North Carolina coast, which was ill-suited to big ships because of the shallow and treacherous waters behind the barrier islands, the Great Bay had ample room to base privateers to attack Spanish shipping and defend the settlement. Second, Lane had heard stories of gold and silver inland, stories that were reinforced by, of all people, Nicolas Bourguignon, the Frenchman picked up by Francis Drake when he sacked St. Augustine the previous summer. You remember him. Drake's men heard him playing the Huguenot song William of Nassau on his fife when they landed on the beach, and Bourguignon led them to their target. The younger Richard Hacklite had interviewed Bourguignon when he returned to England in September, and the Frenchman had told of vast gold and diamond mines in a mountainous region known as Appalachie. We have heard these rumors before, right? Hernando de Soto had chased them to ground 45 years before and found nothing. But apparently the English did not know that. And, in fairness, Juan Pardo, the Spaniard who explored the area in 1566, a generation after Soto, also heard and trafficked in these stories. Rumors of gold and diamonds turned out to be very difficult to discredit. And, it must be said, misinformation long predates Facebook. And finally, there was still the possibility that one of the great rivers flowing into the region would open up a passage to the Pacific and a fast route to Asia. Lane had disproved Verrazano's theory that Pamlico Sound might be that connection, but the Chesapeake might go anywhere. Notwithstanding the gathering storm of war, Raleigh jumped right into organizing another expedition to the region, this time aiming at the Chesapeake. It remained the case that Elizabeth would not authorize Raleigh to lead the voyage himself, and at this point he probably would have concluded on his own that he could not go. Not only did he have huge responsibilities in organizing the national defense, but Elizabeth had allocated to him hundreds of thousands of acres in southern Ireland to develop and settle for the English, 
effectively golden handcuffs. So who would lead the expedition? Lane had lost the confidence of Raleigh and Elizabeth by abandoning Roanoke Island instead of toughing it out. Granville probably was not up for a quick turnaround, having just spent most of 1586 at sea. And Thomas Harriet was busy preparing his account of Roanoke for publication, which Raleigh viewed as an important bit of promotion to attract both investors and settlers to his colonization project. A patent to settle and exploit 1,800 miles of North American coastline and its hinterlands is of no value if you don't actually settle and exploit it. That seems to have left the artist John White, who had already been to Roanoke twice before and knew as much about the region as Harriet and Lane. He'd drawn several famous maps of it. Perhaps by default, then, White it would be. Raleigh and White knew that any permanent settlement needed to be sustainable in the genuine rather than the modern marketing sense of the word. They needed to attract hardworking tradesmen and farmers, and it needed to be co-ed. For the colony to succeed, it would need people willing to stay there forever and do the work of building a thriving community. And that always requires women. In fact, England, and especially London, had a large population of underemployed and underfed people, many of whom were perfectly competent, but had been displaced by the enclosure of the pastures or the decline in the woolen cloth business. They lived in cramped and diseased quarters, and their diet was unappealing even by the standards of English food, Even in the country, common men were barred from hunting. People might keep rabbits or chickens if they had the space, but in the city, even fresh fish was expensive and difficult to buy. The prospect of unrestricted hunting of game and fish must have been a tremendous draw for chronically hungry city people. The other big attraction, obviously, was land. And that was, at least as a matter of English legal fiction, a function of the organization that Raleigh set up. David Beers Quinn describes it as follows, with a couple of clarifying tweaks inserted by me. An entirely new type of organization was being put together, and for its creation, we probably have to thank Raleigh himself. What it offered the participants was incorporation under Raleigh, as the governor of the city of Raleigh and Virginia. This would give them some status as a body of men capable of raising money and of distributing land, and so would make it possible for them to raise subscribers among their friends who would stay at home. Raleigh assured those who would go on the voyage that they would distribute as much as 500 acres each, a very large farm in England at the time, to any family or independent individual who went If 500 acres of wilderness or of land already belonging in some manner or other to the native peoples may not seem much to us, but it would have seemed like a fortune to the type of people most likely to take part as settlers. During that winter, White recruited 92 men, 17 women, and 9 children. Most of the men were in their 20s or early 30s, and most of the women in their late teens and 20s, 
All nine children were boys aged between 3 and 12. Ten or eleven couples joined the voyage, including John White's son-in-law, Agnes Dare, and his daughter, Eleanor Dare, who was already pregnant with the future Virginia Dare. The pilot, Simon Fernandez, the two Indians, Monteo and Toei, and White himself would round out the expedition, not counting the sailors who would make the ships go. Raleigh secured three ships to carry the colonists. The 120-ton and well-armed flagship Lion, on which White and Fernandez would sail. An unknown flyboat. You'll remember that a flyboat was a craft of Dutch design capable of going over the ocean and operating in shallow coastal waters. Of 100 tons under Edward Spicer and a 30-ton pinnace under Edward Stafford, who had been along with Lane's group. The plans for the expedition would be settled by the end of March, and the fleet would depart England after sailing west to Plymouth on May 8, 1587. Even as White and Raleigh were victualling the ships and coming to the final arrangements with the recruited colonists, geopolitical tectonic plates shifted again. On February 19, 1587, the English executed the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, who had been under house arrest for 20 years. Elizabeth's spymaster, Francis Walsingham, had suspected Mary of having been involved in two earlier Catholic plots against Elizabeth in 1571 and 1583. But Elizabeth had refused to allow Mary's indictment Then in the summer of 1586, Walsingham had thwarted another plot, this led by Anthony Babington. This time, the evidence of Mary's complicity was, in James Horne's words, beyond doubt. Mary was tried in October 1586 before a court of 36 noblemen and sentenced to death. Elizabeth had tarried, however, in signing the decree to separate Mary's head from the rest of her, finally doing so only in early February 1587. By order of our sovereign Elizabeth, Queen of England, Wales, and Ireland, Overlord of Scotland, certified by her Privy Council of Parliament, Mary Stewart is condemned to death. This day, February the 8th, the year of our Lord, 1587. Mary's execution may have cut off, I crack me up, the risk of Catholic conspiracy inside England, but it extinguished the last reason why Philip II might not want war with England. While Elizabeth's heresy troubled Philip and Mary's Catholicism delighted him, He was worried that if Mary assumed England's throne, she might form an alliance with France, Philip's only great power rival in Western Europe. Keeping France and England at odds had been a cornerstone of Spain's foreign policy in the 16th century. But the possibility of an English-French-Catholic alliance against Spain died with Mary. Since her son and next in line for the throne, Scotland's James VI, was Protestant. Finally, Mary's decapitation had the bonus effect of firing up Catholics, 
who ramped up their support for a war of conquest to take out Protestant rule in England. This would all turn out to be very bad news for the colonists in Raleigh's new expedition. Roughly a week after departing, at night somewhere off the coast of Portugal, Spicer's flyboat, with roughly 50 settlers and a lot of their supplies, vanished, maybe in bad weather. White, who was fundamentally an artist and a scholar and definitely not a sailor, was mightily distressed and so began his troubled relationship with the fleet's pilot, Simon Fernandez. The lion and the pinnace pressed on to the Canaries, where they would take on fresh water and then catch the trade winds blowing out of the east to cross the Atlantic. In the third week in June, they spotted land, the island of Dominica, and on June 22nd, the two remaining ships dropped anchor off St. Croix. The passengers toddled ashore on wobbly sea legs, ate what they thought were little green apples, and got terribly sick. This was, no doubt, an important and fortunately non-lethal lesson for those tender-footed strangers in a strange land. From St. Croix, the fleet made its way to Puerto Rico, landing in the same place that Lane and Grenville had anchored and built a fort in 1585. The bickering between White and Fernandez seems to have amplified here. White wanting to trade for salt, livestock, and seed for crops, and Fernandez insisting on setting sail. White suspected him of wanting to train the lion's cannon on Spanish prizes, rather than supporting the colony. Their relationship would only get worse. There was other bad news. After departing Puerto Rico, White learned that two Irishmen, Darby Glavin and Dennis Carroll, those aren't Irish names at all, had deserted. Glavin had been along with Lane and would be able to describe the precise location of the English settlement on Roanoke Island to the Spanish, which he eventually did. Now, the plan was to go first to the Outer Banks and search for the 15 men that Grenville had left behind on Roanoke Island, drop off the two Indians, and sail for the Chesapeake. They reached the Outer Banks in the third week of July, 1587. On July 22nd, as White and his men were departing on Stafford's pinnace to look for Grenville's 15 men, Simon Fernandez declared that he and his men would proceed no further with the colonists and would leave them at Roanoke Island. This was a curious and fateful moment to which we will return in a trice. That same evening, White and his men landed on Roanoke Island and found only the bleached bones of one man, presumably either the dude who got his head bashed in or the poor fellow who ate the arrow. Since either of those men would have been dead at most 13 months, this passage made me wonder if a body would decompose down to a bleached skeleton in that time. It turns out that googling how long does it take a body to turn into a skeleton reveals a fair amount of information on human decomposition. A body left out in the sun and exposed to the elements can be reduced to a skeleton in as little as two months and certainly within a year. So these bones might have belonged to either of the two we know were killed in the group Grenville left behind in the summer of 1586. Of course, White did not know yet what had happened to Grenville's men. 
That would come later, when Stafford and Monteo would call on Monteo's tribe at Croatoan. I suppose it should be said at this point that I should fervently hope that nobody I know turns up dead, since my recent search history would not help my defense. Now let's get back to this decision by Simon Fernandez to leave everybody at Roanoke Island, rather than take them to the Chesapeake. The historical record is extremely muddled. In theory, White was in command of the expedition, and Fernandez was supposed to follow his orders. In practice, Fernandez and men loyal to him were the only even arguably competent mariners on the voyage, and for some time they had used that leverage to more or less tell White what they were going to do, rather than carrying a fig what White wanted them to do. For example, White had wanted to go ashore in Puerto Rico and Hispaniola and trade for things useful for the colony, and Fernandez had refused, hoping to capture a Spanish prize at sea. White would in fact get back to England and report to Raleigh that Fernandez had been mutinous in his decision to stay at Roanoke. Maybe so, but White did not even by his own account challenge Fernandez, acquiescing in the moment. Perhaps he was just not the confronting type, which is a grievous personality defect in a commander. Or maybe White understood that the colonists were tired and demoralized, and maybe he was too, and that they really did not want to stay on the ships any longer. Regardless, White decided to unload at Roanoke, resolving to use the existing and largely intact physical plant left by Lane, and then Grenville's men, as a temporary base until the colonists could identify a better location in the Chesapeake and relocate there. Then, in a rare lucky break for the Roanoke project, three days into unloading the lion and the pinnace, Edward Spicer's flyboat and the accompanying settlers and supplies materialized off Hatteras. Remarkably, after all of that, of the 118 settlers who had left Plymouth, only two were lost. The Irishmen who defected to the Spanish in Puerto Rico. Oh, happy day. No worries. Shiz is about to get real. On July 28, six days after the lion had arrived and three days after the flyboat had appeared, a Londoner named George Howe was hunting for crabs at the mouth of a creek that flowed into the sound, a couple miles from the fort, that being in air quotes you cannot see. A party of Secatons, the old crew of the now decapitated Wingina, were invisible in the rushes along the water, watching to see if Howe had any friends nearby. Satisfied that he did not, they struck. Here's how James Horn describes it. Sixteen arrows riddled Howe's body, and he fell screaming into the water. In an instant, the warriors were upon him, beating his head to a pulp with their war clubs, quickly silencing his cries. Then they were gone, heading back to the mainland, leaving the scene as undisturbed as they had found it, save only for the bloody corpse floating gently in the water and a cloud of flies buzzing greedily overhead. Horn can be imaginative. A search party found Howe's body later that day, and when the settlers heard the grisly news, the excitement of their new circumstances, 
must have flipped instantly to fear. White knew he had to figure out who had murdered Howe, so he dispatched Stafford with Monteo and 20 armed men in the pinnace to learn what he might from Monteo's people on Croatoan Island. They were received well and reported that they had heard that Wingina's old posse had killed the Londoner. The Croatoans also recounted the story of the 15 men Grenville had left behind, at least to the point when the 13 survivors had fled across the sound in the boat. So Stafford had reason to suspect that Howe's killing was an extension of that earlier planned attack on the English. Stafford asked the Croatoans to intercede and to tell the Succotans that notwithstanding the bloodshed between them, they wanted a peace conference essentially to bury the hatchet. And yes, that expression does come from Native American peacemaking ceremonies. But I don't actually have the first clue whether the Algonquins in North Carolina in the 1580s did any such thing. Any listener who wants to figure that out will get credit when I report out in the future. The Croatoans agreed to talk to the Secotans and revert within a few days. Importantly, they also asked the English to provide them with some sort of badge or signal that would prevent a mistaken attack on them. They had been confused before for hostile Indians and did not want it to happen again. This either did not happen or the badge or signal did not work out as designed. After a week of hearing nothing, White reluctantly agreed that there was no choice but to launch a raid on the mainland Indians at the Secaton village known as Desamunkapuk. During the night of August 9th, White, Stafford, Monteo, and two dozen armed men crossed over the sound of the mainland and crept up on the village. From the woods at the edge of Desamunkapuk, try saying that three times fast, they saw some Indians sitting around a fire, and they attacked. One of them was shot and killed before Manteo realized that these were Croatoans, not Secotans, and the English broke off the attack. Apparently, the Secotans had abandoned their village after killing Howe, fearing just such a reprisal. And the Croatoans had gone over there to gather ripened food in the town's fields. Monteo was able to talk the Croatoans out of going to war over the incident by pointing out that they had sent no message about peace talks nor alerted the English that they'd be looting the Secotans' village. Still, the position of White and the settlers remained very insecure, with the Secotans on the loose and the Croatoans more than a little grumpy. The English were in just as precarious a position as Lane's men had been in 1586, or even more so, because so many of Lane's men were at least experienced fighters. On August 13th, White officiated over an important ceremony, the christening of Manteo, and the elevation of him by Queen Elizabeth's authority to Lord of Roanoke and Desamunkapuk. The christening would make Monteo the first indigenous person admitted into the Church of England on American soil. This sounds like a silly thing to our modern ears, but the conversion of heathens was as important to Protestants, and Walter Raleigh in particular, as it was to any Catholic friar. In his christening, Monteo would be the first of many thousands of, quote, praying Indians to introduce the now dated and disrespectful term adopted in New England during the 1600s for practicing Christian Indians. 
and his elevation to the English nobility, Monteo was, sadly for him, roughly as powerful as the last president of Afghanistan, insofar as his authority depended on English firepower. And in the summer of 1587, on the outer banks of North Carolina, that was far from convincing. On August 18th, White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, gave birth to a baby girl to be christened Virginia. She was the first person born of English parents in the lands now making up the United States, and in the 434 intervening years has been transformed into a symbolic device more than a person in the ongoing struggle over the American story. Virginia may not have lived more than a few weeks. We have no idea for reasons that will become clear. But her name has become, frankly, a weapon in the hands of those who would weaponize history, from feminists to white nationalists. If you are inclined to rescue the memory of the baby Virginia from such people, pop over to the About tab on our website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and buy a Presentism Forbidden t-shirt. Only the coolest people will understand what it means. By the last week in August, the settlers found themselves in a position they had not expected. They were on sandy and exposed Roanoke Island, not settled in some deep harbor in the fertile lower Chesapeake. They were threatened by Indians, who had already taken one of their number in the most shocking way imaginable. And finally, well aware of the bad luck that had dogged Raleigh's project from the beginning and the change in plans imposed by Fernandez and his men, they were not confident of reinforcement or resupply. The lion and the flyboat were getting ready to depart, eventually to go back to England after some privateering along the way. And the colonial leaders determined that one of them should sail back with the ships to advocate in person for help. After lengthy deliberations, they decided that John White would be their representative with the greatest probability of success, and after much protestation, he agreed. Just after midnight on August 28, a deeply troubled John White set sail for England with Edward Spicer on the flyboat. White would, one day, years hence, finally get passage back to North Carolina, but would never see his granddaughter daughter, or any other Roanoke colonist again, and neither would any other Englishman. The 118, we lost the two Irishmen, but we got two babies, actually, would, with Grenville's 13 survivors and Lane's three, become the stuff of legend. They were the lost colonists of Roanoke. And even today, historians, archaeologists... And now geneticists are developing interesting new evidence. We will come back to that mystery in the near future, at least to give you a taste for it. This is a great place to stop for today. Next time we will learn why it took White so long to get back to the Outer Banks. That story involves one of the most astonishing victories at sea in early modern history. Thank you again for listening please visit us on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. And be sure to send me your questions, comments, corrections, elaborations, pats on the back, and eruptions of indignant outrage through the contact page on the website or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. 
You can also follow the podcast on our Facebook page, The History of the Americans Podcast. And you can track me down on Twitter under the absurd username at the history of TH2. Don't ask me how it ended up that way. Till next time. <laughs>